Welcome to Trilogy in Theory. My name is Webb, and this is my co-host, Mike. After three more months of excellent trilogies, we sit back and relax with another B-Sides episode. Uh, we've got three films to talk about today, as always. The first one is a Brian De Palma feature, Dressed to Kill. You see, there's some men and women, too, who think they're born in the wrong body. They're called transsexuals, and all they want to do is have their sex changed. I do that. Well, if you're a man that wants to become a woman, you take female hormones. What do they do? Well, your skin softens, you grow breasts, and you don't get hard anymore. Great. Sure you want to know about this? Yeah, yeah, it's giving me some uh, wonderful new ideas for a science project. I mean, instead of building a computer, I could build a woman. Out of me. Great idea. In that case, I'll give you all the details. The next step is surgery. A, um, let me see if I can remember the exact word Levy told me. Oh, yeah, panectomy. Hmm. What's that? Oh, you know, they take your penis and slice it down the middle. Yeah, yeah, that's, um, what I thought it was. Then, um, castration plastic reconstruction and the formation of an artificial vagina a vaginoplasty to those in the know i started off not liking de palma at all his work uh, i thought was uh, smutty dirty versions of hitchcock's work and i just i was like no thank you and then as i got older and the more i watched his work the more i enjoyed it and and found it to be extremely idiosyncratic what about you? Uh, did you ever veer on the edge of, like, do I like this or not with De Palma? Was it love at first sight or, or hatred? Because I feel like you can't you can't walk the line with this guy. You can't be like, oh, I think it's okay. I, th- I feel like it's the extremes. Uh, I mean, I'm sure his peak was, um, you know, late 70s, early 80s. Uh, so if that's where you're starting, as I did uh, as a teenager, we were talking before we i guess got into the conversation proper about uh tarantino and um he adored De Palma. i remember reading something about uh, him and his video store days where uh, one of his peers was trying to steer him off of that as far as like well why don't you love <laughs> love the guys that De Palma's ripping off <laughs> and, like, <laughs> and i think at the time qt saw nothing better than being uh the I guess succession line where he would then rip off De Palma and it would just be this this snake that would just eat itself. But depending on your age, I don't know if say you started with Snake Eyes starring Nicolas Cage. If you're be like, <laughs> well, this guy's the shit. But uh, the more titillating fare I think that we think of when uh, the name De Palma comes up, where there's sex and nudity and usually uh, a prostitute. I believe a blowout. And uh, the film we're discussing today, Dressed to Kill, it's the same actress, right? Playing <laughs> playing a hooker. And so he has his sweet spots, and I'm not going to besmirch the man for that. But I I started with uh, Carrie, Blowout, Dressed to Kill, and so I, I really dug his stuff. Maybe Body Double is where I started to veer off a little bit. But uh, that one's also set in the adult film industry, and I felt like, okay, maybe we've gone down the uh, Uncle Pervy rabbit hole it's a bit too far <laughs> for my liking with Mr. De Palma. But for the most part, I find his stuff very entertaining. Well, uh, you know, I thought about that. And it's funny that you mentioned that that he's, he's getting into that uh, Uncle Perv because I almost feel like Dress to Kill doesn't go far enough sometimes. <laughs> oh, no. And I, <laughs> but I, I wonder, because one of the, I mean, who doesn't love Nancy Allen? I think we all first fell in love with her in RoboCop. It's so weird. Blow out. Okay, okay, well. <laughs> all right, fair enough. We we all walk a different path, but I hope we eventually get to the corner of Nancy Allen is amazing. And... We we all end up jerking off to the same woman. Is that the lesson <laughs> that you're saying? <laughs> well, I was trying to do it a bit of subtlety, but since we're talking about De Palma, sure. No. Out the no, window. That's out the window. Yep, yep. She is wonderful in this. And I felt like he was hinting at an illegal sex scene between 
Nancy Allen and Keith Gordon. I was like, is this it? Or, you know, is Peter going to have sex with a hooker while he's underage? Because I could totally see that being in a De Palma film. I just can't believe it didn't happen. And I don't know if I was disappointed or not, but at the very least, we got to have some very sexy scenes with, with Nancy Allen anyway. So, oh well, I guess it's okay. I, I see your point, although I'd never considered it because apparently I did not reach the, the levels of perversion. Uh, that you, <laughs> or you, you saw more in De Palma than I did. Certainly, Keith Gordon is the audience surrogate in a way, probably for the De Palma demo of the young, uh, horny man uh, that just... You know, and also a uh, a video dork. The AV Club comes yeah! to to solve solve this mystery, uh, which a lot of you know De Palma stuff is is inside baseball, and it's uh, you know going back to Tarantino. It's like he he saw a lot of things in film that he liked, and he's like, I'm going to do that <laughs> exactly what I'm watching. I'm going to do that, but through my my lens, which involves uh, a shower scene with a woman just really sudsing up just for an extensive amount of time. <laughs> yeah. You know, and that first scene, I was like, is this sexy? I don't know. I, like, I'm not <laughs> sure. Because it's so hyper real. It's almost as if, you know, the voyeuristic factor is definitely there. And it almost feels like the actress knows that we're watching. So she is hamming it up just a little bit more, too. It's a very odd scene. And I couldn't completely engage myself in it but so you had to watch it over and over really study it okay another thing that really stuck out to me and i think anybody who's going to watch this for the first time in with, with today's lens is that well in, in the 80s and 90s i think you have a lot of those serial killer films where you know the there's a transsexual or transvestite person of interest whether they are the killer or not uh, oh, what's that Paul Verhoeven flick that came out that's awesome? Oh, uh, Basic Instinct. And, and there's a lot happening in that film. And, and to the point where uh, he was targeted specifically, his films had protests from these uh, pro-LGBTQ organizations at that time. And this film kind of falls into that trap a little bit as well, where you have Michael Caine, who is right there in that group. And and almost that, that last sequence... Uh, in the restaurant where uh, you've got Nancy Allen and Keith Gordon having the conversation loudly <laughs> and, and Brian De Palma make, making sure he has like a, a a completely outraged patron of this restaurant just can't believe what she's hearing. It's just, it's played for comedic effect and that might be disrespectful to that community. Part of that controversy also is, I think Silence of the Lambs got lumped into that group as well and I always defend that one because... Buffalo Bill is not transsexual. He is simply trying to convince himself he is. I, I just, I always have to put that out there because I don't know why uh, people don't really look into this. They just see a certain iconic scene and, and start to attack it. So I do wonder, uh, am I allowed to enjoy this? But again, you have to put it all into context. I like that <laughs> on Trilogy and Theory. We have to take a moment to defend Best Picture winner, classic The Sounds of the Lambs. Like, <laughs> hold on a minute. <laughs> this film's not got its due yet, but um, I have your answer. This is an official Criterion Collection selection, so yes, film snobs are allowed to enjoy this. Uh, the backlash be damned. I think, I don't know about this one, because it didn't... It, it says on Wikipedia this was a box office hit. I, I don't know. This is before our time. Uh, I just always assumed De Palma stuff was a big success on VHS. I don't know about its initial theatrical run, but this is the type of stuff you would want to, you know, if you're too young or maybe you're too ashamed to go see Dress to Kill uh, as a mature adult, uh, you certainly enjoy it in the privacy of your own home because he revels in trash and trashiness. Like he's he makes no bones about it. Uh, basic Instinct, I actually remember my, uh, my stepmom and dad going to see it and... This is before I got to lay eyes on it because uh, I was I was a child and I said how's the movie and my stepmom says I was hoping no one we knew saw me coming out of that theater <laughs> and I, of course you know I think I was eight or nine years old I'm like I got to see this movie what <laughs> what would be so shameful about it and boy was I right as an eight year old when I got to see it <laughs> you know a few years later oh man 
the difference being, uh, I think, yes, I, I do remember the controversy with Basic Instinct, but I think Sharon Stone is so good and so iconic that eventually the queer community was like, eh, we'll take her. <laughs> we'll take Sharon Stone. Yeah, yeah, she may be uh, slicing people up with an ice pick, but uh, she's too cool to, to exclude her from the club. I don't know as much about uh, Bobby here as the woman uh, slicing people up in elevators. I don't know if you have as much fun with that, but you know, on a rewatch, and I wonder how you feel about this. I feel like this might be the dorkiest of De Palma movies. It's sort of a collection of dorks solving the case. The villain's kind of a dork. They're all kind of nerding out about their own shit. And I, I say that as like a fan of uh, blowout where yet again, the AV club comes to the rescue, except in that case, it's, John Travolta, not a teenager, like trying to figure out <laughs> how his mom died sleeping around with so many men. Like, I don't know. There's just, you want to be Travolta. I don't know if you want to be any of these people, but it's sure a lot of fun hanging out with them. I say that for the, the villain, the heroes. I mean, does anyone want to be Dennis France? <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> no. <laughs> Detective Marino, not a cool guy. Nope. No, not at all. One thing I have to mention is the elevator sequence. Now, is it the kill, or is it when Nancy Allen stumbles uh, upon the body? Because that's, yes. to me, that's where... Yeah. That, that the extra little bit where she makes a discovery and then realizes in beautiful slow-mo uh, that the killer is still in the elevator, uh, and then makes a, a grab. <laughs> for, for, you know, you and your line of work, you have to be looking at Nancy Allen like, what are you doing? Like... <laughs> Messing with an active crime scene. Certainly. Certainly. You know what? Normally, I absolutely go exactly right there to that moment. And I hate that. I hate it when my job yeah, seeps into my movie watching. There's an episode of Twin Peaks, uh, the, the return, in which a character is looking up the DNA database and it says APHIS uh, on the computer, which is the fingerprint database. And I was like, that's something that should have been caught in <laughs> going through and just a little bit of research. The DNA database is not APHIS. That's the fingerprint database. Anyway, stuff like that happens all the time. I was so into this movie, did not think about that at all until you just mentioned it, but you're like, you're right. The active, active crime scene is happening. Don't grab that knife. You're right. <laughs> well, I've ruined it. Um, you know, I'm just trying to do my part. Uh, I think it's amusing you're attacking David Lynch, who doesn't even believe in chapters <laughs> on modern technology. So he's not going to stop to research anything on a computer. That's not going to happen. Um, where do you think this one fits uh, as far as rewatchability for that the actual story? Maybe Because I think sometimes De Palma fandom does really get hung up on his technique yeah. and like, you know what he's referencing. So, I mean, even if, even if you've pulled this up just to, to read some basic reviews, they lead off with like, here's what he took from psycho. Uh, here's the Hitchcock reference here, there, which is all over his filmography. But you said you've watched it a few times. Does the, the actual story hook you uh, every time? Or is it more of like a, a sort of film nerd joy that he's like pushing those buttons of, of, of filmdom, the reference across time to things that he enjoys. I'm a sucker for a good whodunit. So I do, I do enjoy the story here. Uh, and maybe it's also because the film is casted so well because Nancy Allen is, is like, you know, the hooker with a heart of gold is such an overused cliche, but I feel like she does a really good job with it. <laughs> Especially with Nancy Allen in particular. Yeah. <laughs> And, yeah, and even, like, the little things about the film, I, I really latch on to. Like, the, the cabbie who decides, like, ah, like, how about I pick you up for dinner? Like, little scenes like that really fill out the world, this really weird and smutty world. Even the <laughs> the person who has venereal disease, and he gets that weird letter with the exclamation mark. I've never read a doctor's report with exclamation <laughs> marks, but sure enough, this guy has one. A little, little more bedside manner, maybe a more cold and clinical assessment. Right. <laughs> Whoa, dude, <laughs> you've got an STD. <laughs> exactly. Uh, the silliness with how he's trying to, I guess, woo her with the glove. Like, it's all very bizarre and odd, and it can only happen in a De Palma film. So while, yes, the story absolutely appeals to me, 
I can't separate all of De Palma's idiosyncrasies and and uh, what each of the actors bring to the role. So, yeah, I I think I'm all in on this one. I I was really kind of positive on it when I first watched it, but it's just gotten more and more uh, exciting for me to uh, rewatch it. And I, I I'll be honest with you, I'm not done with this film yet. I'm still gonna uh, probably check it out. I don't know if it's gonna be like a once a year type thing. I I can't place a day where i'm like it's dressed to kill day but <laughs> i mean i guess we're going to be releasing this around fourth of july that would be a weird way to celebrate <laughs> america the country but you know what it's fine <laughs> I, I would be totally fine with this representing us and the uh the collage of people you're going to meet i myself like you will just go back and revisit uh angie dickinson and her hygiene habits um, <laughs> over and over again She's dead. Who's dead? You know damn well who's dead. Oh, this is his fear. Listen to me. He killed her and I'm not crazy. Jody and I had a seance in the Ooh. bathroom. Jody and I, and nothing, nothing happened, but when I went back there, she was there. She was. Wait, wait, wait. You, you had a seance. Are you angry with me? What? Maybe you resent how busy I've been. No. You know what I've got at stake with this paper. You know how important this is to me. I can't help but feel that somehow you're you're trying to sabotage me. You're trying to hurt me somehow. Norman, this isn't about you. Something is happening to me. And it's, it's not to get even or... And it's not some warped bid for attention. Something is happening in our house, whether you like it or not. Our second film in this B-Sides episode is What Lies Beneath, a film that I had zero interest in until you mentioned it. <laughs> You're like, Zemeckis gets to play in Hitchcock's Toy Box, why not? And I was like, you know what? Why not? <laughs> I love how you you opened by throwing me under the bus, um, because this was a, a huge movie when it came out. Yeah, in, in it was. Uh, Wikipedia says it was the 10th highest grossing film of that year. So uh, I knew I was in for it uh that summer because zemeckis like in our, our our first film we discussed on this episode is was proudly leaning into the hitchcock references and uh, the rear window aspect of what you know what are the neighbors doing next door i think he killed his wife and and um all all manner of thing they even have their own uh, i mean they led with it in the trailer bathtub uh sequence that's supposed to be uh terrifying uh, which my wife deemed silly as she watched it for the first time. <laughs> that was like my favorite scene in the whole film. I was like, like God, Zemeckis is directing the shit out of this. And I can imagine somebody next to me being like, this is silly. It's like, <laughs> I think she liked the uh, concept of, you know, the, this, how is this woman going to get out of this? I don't know if she liked the execution of the supernatural causing Harrison Ford to be a total klutz. Seeing <laughs> Jones bang his head on the side of the tub. Maybe she just has a, a deep abiding respect for Harrison Ford and this, she found this offensive. All of a sudden it's like a, it's a Dick Van Dyke episode. He's tripping and stumbling all over this tub. Yeah. <laughs> so... I guess we really have Tom Hanks to blame for this because while Castaway yes. was on hold because he had to grow a beard, Zemeckis is like, well, I'll go make this other film while you do that. <laughs> hold on, hold on. Grow a beard? He had to lose a massive amount of weight as well. <laughs> I think the beard growing was probably the easiest part, Webb. He had to starve himself. <laughs> <laughs> that's fair. <laughs> okay, all right, that's fair. So yeah, he he makes this movie while he's he's got this other big budget one on hold, and then he just goes right into this and makes a film that makes like what triple its uh, budget back. So on that account, it's very impressive. But you know, you got Harrison Ford mumbling his way through another performance. All the red herrings in this film, <laughs> like the rear window stuff, I feel like. I know that's the whole point of a red herring is to mislead you, but I feel like there is no point to any of it. It's just like, how can we add a little more to this movie? I I have a point on that, especially with the three that we, we have on this particular discussion is not only are all three of them you know, paying homage to, to Hitchcock or Hitchcockian uh, themes, characters and concepts, um, but 
none of the three that we've selected, which is apt for this being a movie podcast with two dudes talking about movies, is that the main female characters, no one really acknowledges <laughs> their turmoil. No one really believes their plight, their pain, until it's too fucking late. And especially in our third film, it's really fucking late. Yes. You know, when, you, when you finally, when you finally <laughs> realize that she means business. But in particular was what lies beneath. Now, in the first one, as we talked about, the hooker with a heart of gold, there's a disrespect because of her profession that she can't be a witness to a crime. Um, she can't like use her eyes, can't use her, her common sense. Um, here, I don't mind as much. I'm, I'm enjoying the, the jam band, the sort of like, let's cover Hitchcock's sort of aspect. Even though if you were excited about this film at the time, they spoiled the fuck out of it. Like, I mean, they, all of that stuff was gone. Even if you saw it opening weekend, if you had any inclination of the advertising, you knew the neighbors, they don't matter. They don't mean anything with what's going on, depending on how they, I guess, which, you know, network you're watching. I think they lean more into the supernatural or the domestic uh, drama. For me, it's the latter that works more. Uh, I don't know about for you, because you said Harrison Ford is a part of, I guess, like early mumblecore <laughs> with his, <laughs> his performance. Uh, for me, it's the, the ghost story that's a little silly at times, especially when the ghost is talking through, like, what, her game of solitaire? <laughs> like, talking through the computer. I'm like, eh, I don't know if this has aged well. But Michelle Pfeiffer... Um, becoming, I guess, increasingly unhinged, but also right um, as she's gaslit by, like, almost everyone around her, including her friend. Her friend is like, yeah, I knew your husband cheated on you, but I just thought maybe you just didn't want to talk about it anymore, so I just, like, never brought it up again. It's like, what the fuck kind of friend? Who have you surrounded yourself with here? And my favorite thing about this web, I adore this film because... You get the kid going off to college in the first 10 minutes, and then we never see them again. <laughs> exactly. I love it. I love it. <laughs> and, you know, I, and I thought about that like halfway through the film. I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> she had a daughter at one point. And I thought about that. I was like, all right, well, I, I guess it's there just to set up the fact that now she's in a completely different place uh, emotionally. Mm -hmm. And so this is a very different. So I was like, okay, I kind of dismissed it in that. Michelle Pfeiffer is a treasure. She really is and does such a good job and adds so much to this character. Even in scenes like where I think she was looking out the window and then too many jump scares. Way too many. But anyways, there's a jump scare with... You're talking about when the neighbors are having sex, right? And you got... No, I don't think a, so. A little too passionate for you? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. It was it was the right amount of... The right amount of De Palma passion. I believe somebody may be coming towards the house at that time, and she's searching around. Harrison Ford comes in, scares her, and he's like, we ought to get to this dinner. <laughs> and uh, she's like, oh, no. And then she kind of skips away. <laughs> <laughs> and it's so wonderful. And, I, and so a lot of this film that I'm frustrated with kind of melts away whenever Michelle Pfeiffer does something super charming. And which makes me like her even more. And as the reveal is is slowly fed to us, like, oh, this is what happened. And, and either the mystery isn't very compelling, but you're still with it all the way because Michelle Pfeiffer is doing a good job. Uh, and that's why even in that bathtub scene, you're right. It does get a little, well, excuse me, your wife is right. <laughs> it does get, mm, there you go. It does get a little silly, but I'm so in love with this character and her, her situation that I'm on the edge of my seat. And I do that. Th I'm, I'm, I'm sure many people do this as well, but when somebody, any character in a movie is underwater, I hold my breath as well just to see if I if I were in their shoes, would I also uh, get away? Can't do that in Aquaman, I guess. But other than that, yeah, ultimately, I just felt like the film was uh, dull. But what I will uh, absolutely do is uh, hunt down the DVD. <laughs> except when... Hold on. Hold on. You thought it was dull, except when Michelle Pfeiffer was being charming, which to me is almost the entirety of the film. So, I mean, this is, I think you could argue, <laughs> like my wife, apparently, if you feel this is a complete uh, and utter uh, shit show, a disrespect to the great Harrison Ford. But this is it's not quite the two-hander they advertise. That's pretty much Michelle Pfeiffer's movie and then Harrison Ford 
as you said, comes in, mumbles something, uh, as Oscar the Grouch. Uh, I, I, I probably have rewatched this more than you would care to know. Whoa. <laughs> I've, I've come back to this one, but it's interesting. I don't remember as a teenager thinking it was anything more than, well, that was good summer fun. Like, I remember coming out of it thinking, like, oh, I was kind of hoping it'd be more De Palma-esque. I was hoping it'd be even more inside baseball. And I thought it was a little tame. I didn't really like the ghost story aspect. But yet, <laughs> I've watched this on DVD. I don't know if it's got a Blu-ray. I don't. I feel like even my uh, iTunes copy was not that great. How about, how about you? How'd you watch this? I watched it on iTunes, but I know that a Blu-ray has been announced fairly recently and mm. i'm wondering if they're going to port the power over... of tit again <laughs> i wonder <laughs> if uh, they're going to port over some of those special features because there is a zemeckis commentary and anytime i don't react to a film well i always try to find out if there's a commentary or a documentary or something because i want to know more about it because i hate it when i don't like something i really don't like it because i've spent <laughs> this amount of time investing in it and it's frustrating <laughs> so <laughs> naturally a sane person would be like, ah, move on with your life. No, I'm like, <laughs> I'm going to spend more time with this thing that didn't gel with me to try to figure out why, because I, I obsess over it. So I am on the... Knowing you, that does not surprise me in the slightest <laughs> that you are... <laughs> you invest more into something that you had no part in this creation. You, you don't owe Zemeckis anything more. Uh, I do wish he made more movies with real people not real people with the, the fucking polar express beowulf like rotoscope just and i know and this film is kind of guilty of like especially late 90s early 2000s uh the like here's what we can do with computers and he moves the camera around and i don't think it it looks that great but i still am like thank god he's got real people like combined with this with his like obsession with like the technical technical aspects of film it so easily could have been like a rush job. Like, I just need something to do while Tom Hanks is on this diet. But it's not. He's, he's keeping his crew employed. I, I, I respect that. I applaud it. He's treating them like, you know, like that. It's, it's everyone has a job here. It's not just whatever, yeah. you know, Zemeckis farts and he's going to put it on screen. He's like, when I feel like it, uh, you'll work again. No, he's treating this like I need to keep these people like insured for like the next you know few years. You know what? I'm right. This movie's fucking fantastic. This is the, like a noble achievement in film. <laughs> Zemeckis, Blue collar Bob. He is excellent, and he is very talented. And there are even even when things I'm like I'm not invested in what's happening here at all because so much of it, you know, by the end of it, I was like, well, that, none of that mattered. But because it's filmed so well, and and that's why if a director is bringing his A game, and Zemeckis usually does. Rarely do I find him like, oh, he's just coasting. I feel like I owe it to him to invest my time in his work. Uh, even if I didn't like it, like, well, why didn't I like it? That's the whole point of being a fan of film, I feel like. I mean, so often, just because you've watched a ton of movies and you've logged millions of things onto Letterboxd does not make you a fan of film, I feel like. It's really the amount of love you have for the people making it and how much investment and what you get out of each of these, uh, each film. Before before he posts his one and a half star review on that <laughs> Okay. <laughs> I've spent 17 hours this week on this project and I come to the conclusion that it stinks. Uh, I'm done with it now. I will have earned <laughs> that conclusion. <laughs> She's so sweet. But you could see it in her eyes. She liked to be naked, to suck cock. Okay, Mr. Breen. And then she asked me if she can have a glass of water alone in the kitchen. Like, that's no big deal. <laughs> well, why was that a big deal? It was obvious. She wanted me to pull out my thing so that she could laugh at it. <laughs> Mr. Breen. We need to ask you some questions, okay? When I cut her, she screamed. But she scared me. What did she expect? Interesting. But we're here to talk about Rachel Solando, okay? Rachel Solando. Do you, do you know that she drowned her own kids? She drowned her kids. This is... This is a sick fucking world we live in, I'll tell you that. You know what? They should be gassed. 
All of them, the, the, the retards, the killers, the niggers. You kill your own kid, gas the bitch. Lastly, as much as I talked about how much I love cinema and I love film and I love putting my time into movies, <laughs> I feel like I'm going to go to cinema jail because our last film, Shutter Island, is probably my favorite Scorsese film. It's Martin Scorsese completely unhinged, playing <laughs> in the kind of sandbox that I wish the Mechus was playing in. Oh, goodness. <laughs> uh, but no, Scorsese's pulling... Look, man, okay, hold on, hold on. Okay. I came in saying, hey, I, I've seen What Lies Beneath more than I even anticipated as a, a young pup coming out of that opening weekend when I was excited for it. Uh, I want a nicer copy of it. I did not start my conversation with it by saying, you know what? This is fucking better than Back to the Future. <laughs> this is a better movie than Back to the Future. You just, and you didn't, Scorsese doesn't just have one Back to the Future. He has so many. And so that is a bold claim. That, that is spicy hot that you're throwing my way. I don't feel bad about any of the uh, charm of what lies beneath it all now. You're the villain. <laughs> it, it took until the third film, but now you're the villain again. You know what's funny? Is my brother and I were discussing uh, the the top one hundred or top one thousand movies uh, list uh, for the website they shoot pictures, don't they? Gosh, uh, one of the top ten was a Scorsese film, and I'm like racking my brain, like what other Scorsese? Because I had listed all the ones. I was like, Goodfellas is probably up there and stuff, and because he, he was just testing me, we have fun, and I couldn't figure out what the hell. And he says. He's like, it's the one Scorsese film that's apparently amazing, but everybody seems to forget it. And I was like, Raging Bull. And that's exactly what it was. And so I feel like nobody talks about Raging Bull. Maybe maybe it's just my circles. Yeah, I've, I've always assumed that's like the, uh, what did uh, Ebert and Siskel, maybe it was just Ebert. Uh, I believe he said it was the best film of the 80s, yes. best film of yeah. the decade. Uh, I, I feel like they talk about Taxi Driver often and goodfellas like those two are always brought up and raging bull seems to get they're more fun yeah raging bull not as fun uh you know <laughs> i'm not saying what travis pickle does it's just like you know uh good old-fashioned like <laughs> drive around town find an underage prostitute and then kill the pimp like <laughs> you know that's that's happy days but you know, it's it's uh, I guess ends on a high note for this fucking psychopath. You know, he he does a good deed. Raging Bull is a long slog to mediocrity and <laughs> being overweight and a, a punchline like to your own life. And then you know, Goodfellas. I don't know. Goodfellas has to be like the most entertaining, pure entertaining movie that Scorsese has made. It set a standard for uh, a certain kind of film. That is continuously ripped off uh, ever since it mm, came yeah. out. There's no doubt. Even The Departed feels almost like a ripoff of uh, Goodfellas. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I'll throw in my oddball. I'll, I'll, I'm not going to let you, you know, take all the shots here. If I have to put one up there that I prefer to Raging Bull, uh, which I guess is the, <laughs> the forgotten greatest film of the 80s. <laughs> <laughs> Way to go, Scorsese. You, you made so many good movies oh, no. that the one that's considered the best of the decade oh, no. is gone. What what are you what are you saying? Oh no. I my my personal pick is Bring Out the Dead. That's it. the one. Ah. How'd you know? How'd you know? That one really didn't resonate with me at all. And <laughs> it hmm. is what it is. Webb is not a man of the people. <laughs> he does not like seeing the poor redeemed. Uh, he doesn't like to spend time with those that are not uh, successful, wearing suits. Uh, <laughs> it's like the worst road trip movie uh, ever. <laughs> I mean, what do you, you want me to say? What, the king of comedy or something? Like, you know, the, the, another uh, a super fan gets to, you know, for my money, <laughs> Todd Phillips did it better. Than <laughs> <laughs> I, can't even, I can't even finish that sentence without, without breaking... Uh, all right, we're talking Shutter Island. We are. You, you love it more than Goodfellas. I do. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I've seen it so many times. And at the time when it was first announced, I saw that it was an adaptation. I was like, oh, that's kind of neat. And I had been out of reading the reading game for a little while because I, I just finished college at the time. And I was like, ah, I'm just it's so much required reading when you're forced to read things for fucking eight years you're just like tired of it and so reading for pleasure kind of went out the window for me and then i picked up shutter island because i was like you know what i feel like reading the book before the movie comes out it's gonna be a scorsese movie i'm gonna watch it in theaters anyways and so the premise seems very interesting and pulpy 
I was up till like four in the morning. The last hundred pages is essentially the conversation between uh, Ben Kingsley and uh, DiCaprio. And so just on the edge of my seat is like, I can't put this fucker down. And so it's the book that kind of got me back into pleasure reading. And so maybe I have a just a very personal connection to the material. Uh, but everyone is cast so well. It's a near perfect adaptation. Not a fan of that final line that DiCaprio says because it, then you there's a little bit of ambiguity as to whether he is actually um, going through with a lobotomy because he is fixed. And, it, and it's actually kind of a dick move because Ben Kingsley's character, Dr. Crowley, has been working with this fucker for a number of years trying to help people. As my last power move, I'm going to take down therapy. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. I don't need people to be treated as human beings. So, yeah, uh, uh, very upsetting. That last little, like, gosh, it literally is the last few moments of the film that, like, oh, why was that added? Either way, I think it's a wonderful, wonderful adaptation. Very pulpy. It has continuity errors that normally would upset someone like me. But because it all works, all the red herrings that are scattered throughout this film work for me in a way that they don't work for me in What Lies Beneath. Because you've got the character of uh, Teddy slash Andrew. His psyche is inventing these red herrings and these false narratives to prevent him from accepting or realizing the fact that he murdered his wife and it all makes sense to me i don't know man i the journey is fabulous i think if de palma had done this uh why are you all wet baby would have a very different meaning different context <laughs> that's the movie that's the movie i prefer just over and over with different characters asking that question i'm here about to tell you that ever since i had my daughter i cry every time <laughs> The story. And I go for the. <laughs> and I go for the sex gag. <laughs> I really do, though. Tears come. To, it's it's not like a weeping, crying, but tears every single time he is trying to revive his dead daughter, and all of the flashbacks where she is present in in like Dachau and in all the World War Two stuff, just heartbreaking for me and and i'm connecting to this material in a weird way obviously not in a way that it's going to affect the things that i do with my family but Mm -hmm. i make sure you get that on the record (laughs) right (laughs) as will be played in my trial (laughs) scorsese being a film nerd pays homage to a lot of different genres Uh, specifically i love uh, masaki kobayashi's Kwaidan, have you ever seen this? It's a horror anthology. I I I can't watch any more cinema until What Lies Beneath <laughs> comes out on Blu-ray. <laughs> until it enters the Criterion Collection. <laughs> uh, he is paying homage to a lot of these really wonderful uh, old Japanese films, uh, horror films, uh, to create a great atmosphere uh, for all the World War II flashbacks uh, with the score, with the way that he shows his characters the way every god man this is really the kind of movie that scorsese has been wanting to make and he's not bound by anything and it's just him showing love through this super pulpy material i it just works for me in such a big way Oh, well, how, how? And I loved it i loved it in theaters i continue to love it every single uh viewing that i have where are you with this one? I, I've been gushing about it for the past 10 minutes. What about you, man? Well, I find it interesting that you're you're far more engaged with a man who will gaslight himself into a position of power so that he can erase any of the negative foibles he may have had, such as killing his wife. Uh, not, not, not that it wasn't... Uh, I guess, legally justified. I don't know if it'd be considered murder. Uh, Certainly uh, temporary insanity works in that moment when you find her uh, having drowned your three, three children. But to go back to what lies beneath, (laughs) Michelle Pfeiffer is being conspired against by her own husband, the neighbors, uh, her friends, uh, this other, even the other woman, even the fucking ghosts, everyone has <laughs> gone out of their way to make her life uh, as uncomfortable as possible because in the back of her mind, she knows that all of this is untrue, but no one wants to engage with her <laughs> in Shutter Island. 
<laughs> entire facility of dangerous, <laughs> considered insane people, they let him play the role of a cop so he can work <laughs> it out among himself. <laughs> and all of the other people who have suffered their own traumas have been told and badgered, like, oh, God damn it. Here are the lines. You got Ben Kingsley like, don't deviate. Mark Ruffalo is a cop now. You understand? Don't fuck this up for him. And I'm thinking, <laughs> Jesus Christ, if I'm one of the other patients, I'm like, Leo? Leo gets this? When, when is my time in the sun, Kingsley? When when do I get to do my little role play for a month? Let's not pull at these strings because it's going to ruin <laughs> Every feature of you. I never even considered that your- fact, though, that all the other inmates are like, yeah, we're good with this play. What are you? It's like their own version of like, are they doing Oklahoma? Like, they didn't ask for this. They didn't ask to be a secondary character in this other guy's uh, hopeful path to redemption. Um, I I liked it. I, I, had, I remember seeing it. Um, I think it was like a double date. I think I was the, I was probably in a position <laughs> you hate finding yourself in where I was the only one who dug it. And I remember that all three people, including the person I was dating, I was like, eh, it's kind of stupid. And the, the biggest thing they said was, well, you can tell, you can see it coming a mile away. And I'm like, does, does that matter? Like, you know, in fight club, they give the twist away with what? 45 minutes, half hour left. And in this one, I think you're supposed to pick up on the fact that this is an incredibly damaged individual. Whether it's, uh, if you're taking playing it straight, I guess as the film would want you to, his experience in wartime, uh, I don't think you're meant to uh, see this man as just a dragnet cop that's just coming just for the facts. <laughs> and boy, everything else is weird. And why is he having these dreams? He, he just can't get a good night's sleep. And that... The, the two hots in a cot that are providing him and Ruffalo and the change of clothes. Uh, I've never understood that particular complaint that a film that has a turn uh, is only effective if you didn't see the twist coming at all, especially with the amount of foreshadowing that you're getting in this film. I love when they first enter the island and you see the fear in everyone's eyes, which is not natural. Like immediately, if, if he's just like law enforcement why are the guards so jumpy about his mere presence being on there? Unless they just really are protective about you know their job. Uh, I, you know, don't have any of those problems with any of these three films as far as the, the twist being revealed. I think all of them lead you along enough to where, you know, like when that, that next shoe is about to drop and I'm, I'm totally fine with it. I, I enjoyed, I put it more in the vein of Cape fear uh, and that I find it, I find those to be two of the more popular Scorsese movies that are horrific in dealing with their violence. Uh, Goodfellas may be more serious and not pure genre fare. Somehow the violence is more fun in Goodfellas than it is in the sort of throwaway, like, oh, let's just see if Scorsese has some box office power. Uh, I don't find anything appealing about uh, even like Scorsese punching a man here is deeply uncomfortable. Like you never see him in the hero role. And I, I respect that about this movie. I respect it about Cape fear. I don't think Nick Nolte has ever seen as a hero, uh, in that, in that particular film. If we're going to dismiss a film because like, Oh, we saw it coming. Can we get rid of the entire rom-com genre or every biopic ever no, made? I won't allow it. <laughs> it's like, you know, I, I, it doesn't really matter what the result is. Like I'm more interested in the journey. Um, I mean, it would be great if a film has a great ending and all that, but, you know, there are only, uh, what, three or four uh, types of films? Like, we, uh, we've we discussed this That's before. That's why we're doing this trilogy. You just got to rip off somebody else, and they, you know, Hitchcock ripped himself off. That's why Hitchcockian is a, is a term. Yeah, totally fine. There's only three or four movies, and What Lies Beneath is one of them. <laughs> <laughs> you know, my, my wife... Uh, had an interesting response to Shutter Island. Oh, yeah! Which, um, I was going to ask about that. Yeah. Um, she liked it, but I, I think her reaction was, when you do have the revelation uh, about what happens to his family, I do think that's a jumping off point for some people for this type of movie, which is weird. It's like you... Like, What Lies Beneath, just to use that as an example, or even Dressed to Kill with poor Angie Dickinson. 
it's like, <laughs> I guess maybe we're okay with women who are involved in some sort of affair. Like, see, that's what you get for being sexually available. You get killed. But you start to bring in the homestead and Michelle Williams killing her own children and then her husband killing her. Uh, all of it has been built up as this incredibly tragic thing. Um, cause that, that maybe is probably the most effective twist is that, um, I think you do believe that something happened to her. I don't remember my first time suspecting her. I thought maybe that was his breaking point, but I did not initially tie together that, oh, the story of the, the patient of the woman that murdered her own children was actually his, his wife. But I could tell, like, in watching my wife's first experience with this, that, you know, this kind of haunted um, kind of detective story on an island that's kooky and all of that. You start to drown three children. The a mother does that. It's not so fun anymore. And I, I do think that maybe that's, uh, that is a maybe a turnoff point. That something like What Lies Beneath and God Help Us, even Dress to Kill, doesn't have. It's like any of the – I mean – you suggested one in Dress to Kill by having the prostitute, I guess, take the virginity of an underage male. <laughs> that might be, that might have been the jumping off point. But she did stick with it. And uh, she, unfortunately for me, preferred it greatly to what lies beneath. So uh, the day is yours, Webb, on this particular episode. I think that it's insulting that you think that Keith Gordon's character is a virgin. <laughs> what made you think that? I think it's a safe bet. You know what? I would gladly, I'd gladly pay the Keith Gordon character if he somehow could prove me wrong. You know what? He probably could with all that video equipment around. <laughs> I'm sure he documented it to the fucking hilt. Um, I wanted to ask you yeah. a question about our our selected trilogy because we did, we didn't really go through them like proper here, but that that's I think a good sort of uh, as we get to the tail end and the, the wrap up. Each of these represent one month. One one previous trilogy that if you've not listened to them, you should go back um, to do so. So I don't know if we've done this since maybe the Michael Sarah days, uh, which was you know a total disaster <laughs> for the listeners and everyone involved. Um, do you find uh, any of these particular B sides to be uh, fitting to have moved into the respective trilogies? And so I'll just I'll read them off, you know, uh, for you and also the benefit of our listeners. Dress to Kill. Uh, was the B-side for directors repeating themselves, which I think is fairly obvious with De Palma. Uh, what Lies Beneath uh, was our Grieving Mother's Good Movies trilogy. And Shutter Island it would have been in A Breakdown of a Trip. Do you see any of those uh, being a better fit uh, into uh, our selected trilogies for the prior three months? I bet we could replace Punch Drunk Love with Shutter Island because then you've also got... Hold on a second! Hold on a second! <laughs> of fucking course. Why did I even ask the question? Like, <laughs> I knew it was coming. <laughs> the, the only reason I say that is because things kind of work out <laughs> for our Barry Egan character... Whereas I don't really think things work out for Leo. So then that would create a little more commonality between the three films. Uh, grieving Mothers, good movies. I don't know if Michelle Pfeiffer is a grieving mother in What Lies Beneath. And I don't know if it's a good movie. So. <laughs> All right. Uh, wrong. Uh, erroneous <laughs> on both counts. I, I would posit that the empty nest is what allows her to have some room That's uh, with their own thoughts. Uh, and it's a fantastic movie uh, that has, it is a modern tragedy among our many modern tragedies that has not got the high definition <laughs> release that it deserves. Uh, yeah. If I, I would bump a uh, traffic. Let's we'll bump a uh, traffic. Yeah. Yeah, fuck it. Fuck traffic. I mean, I'm, but I'm collection. glad. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad. Yeah, we're getting rid of the Criterion Collection movies. <laughs> <laughs> In terms of directors repeating themselves, I would say we get rid of Boyhood. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, three for three. on. But you know what? In fairness to, to this example, you're replacing one criterion with another. So there you go. Fully escape their wrath. How That's about fair. That? And I think that goes to show you the strength of the themes that were selected because you could have uh, such really great films fit in and we can 
kind of take uh, other really good ones out uh, just as easily. And so that's why I think this B side is actually a very necessary. Oftentimes I wonder, I was like, oh, I just want to talk about this film. Let's throw it on a B sides. I feel like this B sides <laughs> truly is like an extended cut. I think it's the um, the best B sides we've done as far as its own trilogy too. Because yeah. normally, you know, we start with a loose sort of like let's do like Hitchcockian movies. But uh, as I was watching them, I think we really hit it on the head as far as all of them are about the the duality of uh, our our like main characters uh, in a way like the. You hated the fact that Michelle Pfeiffer, you know, you deny her right to be a grieving mother uh, or in a good movie. Um, but, you know, she I, I really liked that in the film. They they show that she had a prior life and that the child is I don't know if they're just like cheating a little bit by not having the child be, I guess, the biological uh, daughter of Harrison Ford. Like he doesn't she doesn't have evil running through her veins. <laughs> um, but. I do like the idea that there was an entire life before him and he has really just uh, sort of put her away in a beautiful place. Uh, very different from Shutter Island as far as the literal like putting people away from society and experimenting on them, I guess, in a good way. Although you, you told me not to really think too much about how the good experiments are still <laughs> making the other participants <laughs> live through other people's trauma. Uh, and then Dress to Kill, you know, I don't know if the Michael Caine duality has aged in the most appropriate way. It's a lot of fucking fun, though. I really, I think he's <laughs> he's having fun. Yeah, I think this was a very successful B-Sides. I had a lot of fun with this one. So um, I just had to put up with your almost rapid-fire insults to Robert Zemeckis. Uh, <laughs> and then you introducing Shutter Island as the Scorsese classic. Uh, you caught me off guard this month web you did well you know a good relationship you should be able to surprise your partner keep things fresh this is what it's all about mike i imagine our relationship was me uh almost drowning paralyzed in the bathtub as you say all these horrible things and thankfully uh, the ghost of criterion uh bangs your head <laughs> <on the tub laughs> and saves me <laughs> <laughs> 